the Iranian Revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime in Iran. <clears throat> Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce, and several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure, and many feared it would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite has happened. In the last 20 years, more Iranians have come to Christ than in the previous 13 centuries since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands. Some estimate more than a million. According to the research organization Operation World, Iran has the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. The second fastest growing church is in Afghanistan, where Afghans are being reached in large part by Iranians. This report is from a prayer booklet that the Gospel Coalition just put out this past week called 40 Days of Prayer, Stories of God's Work Around the World. It looks like this. I put a couple copies out in the foyer if you'd like to grab one. It gives you a, a short update of something God is doing around the world and three quick points to pray for that region of the world. And so get this. So we just read what was happening in Iran and then what's happening in Afghanistan through the Iranian Christians going there for the sake of the gospel. An organization called Open Doors International, an organization serving the persecuted church, ranks each year the most difficult countries to follow Jesus in. It's called the World Watch List. And in their most recent list from 2021, Iran and Afghanistan are number eight and number two, respectively. So just get this for a minute. Two of the top ten places it is to be a Christian are two of the places where the church is growing the fastest. The gospel is spreading the fastest. Churches are being built up all over. This should encourage us. It should lead us to think that our prayers are being answered. God is hearing the prayers of His people from around the world. Missionaries are being faithful to go. Things are happening even in the darkest corners of the world. It should also help us to think about how mounting pressure here in our own country, in America, might not be the worst thing to ever happen to us. You know, it might not be the worst thing ever if there's a little bit of heat turned up under our seats here in America. Because let's be honest, we're asleep. We're fighting about immigration and the Equality Act, and those things are all important, and politics and this, that, and the other, the environment. We're fighting about everything. We're so worried in our country about so many other things, and the church is weakening. But what if we were, in some sense, persecuted? I hesitate to use that word because when you read stories of persecution from around the world, what we're going through and what we were about to go through probably is not really a fair comparison. But the heat that's being turned up in our nation should lead us to remember our brothers and sisters from around the world. And we should think, as I said, that, that this might not be the worst thing to ever happen to us. But what, what about the nations? Why should we care? You're like thinking, okay, John, 
we're Americans, we've got all these political things, we've got all these things in our own context, we've got family stuff, personal stuff, we've got so much stuff going on. Aren't there enough issues here at home to deal with? I've literally heard this question asked, aren't there enough lost people in Dallas? Why do we have to care about all the nations? Why should we care about the nations? Why should I read you a report from Iran? Why should I tell you that it's really hard to follow Jesus there in Afghanistan? Why should you get on Open Doors International and pray for those 50 nations on the world watch list? Why should we care about the nations when things are so hard for us, or we think they are, when there's so much going on in our own lives? Why should we care about what God is doing among the nations? Well, let me give you three reasons, and this is where we'll spend our time this morning. Three reasons why we should care about what God is doing among the nations. First, it's Jesus' command. It's Jesus' command. Second, it was Paul's ambition. Paul's ambition. And third, this is God's ultimate goal. So Jesus' command, Paul's ambition, God's goal. Three reasons why we should care, why you should care about what God is doing among the nations. We're going to take these one at a time, then at the end I'll try to close by considering some practical things we can do to put some of this into practice. So why should we care about the nations? Because Jesus says that we should reach the nations. After he rose from the dead, right before he ascended to his throne in heaven, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Of all nations. This wasn't the first time, by the way, that Jesus mentioned the nations. He cleansed the temple because he said the temple must be a house of prayer for all the nations. In his teaching about his return, he said that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, 14. Put that in your eschatological pipe and smoke it. Did you hear what he said? This gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations, and then the end will come. There's a lot of debate about what that means, but I think it means that we have work to do before we can expect Jesus' return. As we learned last week, at the end, the very end of his ministry, Jesus, right before he ascends to heaven, he gathers his 11 disciples and he commands them to make disciples, to help other people follow Jesus. And I said last week that this applies to all of us, no matter who you are, how old you are, how much you know, how much you don't know, where you're from, what nation you're from, whatever. This applies to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, you're supposed to help other people follow Jesus. Make disciples is his vision for our lives. But then he qualifies this command with three words in the Greek. Pantata ethne, of all nations. We have to make disciples, yes, of all the nations. So the big picture vision that Jesus has for his followers is that they must help all the nations of the world follow him. Yes, as I said last week, we should be discipling our children other church members and friends. We should be doing our best to help others follow Jesus right where we are. But Jesus says that all the nations must be discipled, not just the people right around us in our nation. Now, let's stop at this point and define what Jesus means by nations. When we see the word nations in the Bible, we don't need to think of countries with clearly defined borders and governments. This isn't the way the Bible defines a nation. The word for nations is the New Testament Greek word ethne. Ethne. Of course, you can hear that this is where we get our word ethnic. So when we think of nations, we need to think in terms of ethnic groups or people groups. An ethne is a group of people bound together by a common language and a common culture. There are multiple 
ethnes in every country. For example, India has 2,717 people groups, by far the most of any nation. China has 545 people groups or ethnes. In Dallas, just looked this up last night, in Dallas, Fort Worth, no, just in Dallas, excuse me, just in Dallas, Dallas County, I believe, there are three, between three and four hundred languages spoken at home, just here in Dallas. So that's roughly three or four hundred people groups that are represented right here in Dallas. This understanding of nation as an ethnic group is extremely important for our understanding of what Jesus told us to do. He told us to make disciples of all nations. So if we don't know what he means by nation, then we'll be prone to think that we've completed the task as long as there are some Christians in the 195 countries of the world. The problem with that is that those 195 countries that exist today didn't exist when Jesus gave the command. And because within every country, as I said, there are multiple ethnes, multiple languages, multiple cultures, multiple groups of people or people groups. And not to mention the fact that countries are constantly changing their borders and realigning their borders, shifting their borders. So Jesus' command that his, his followers disciple all the people groups of the world doesn't mean that we just need to send missionaries over into all the countries of the world. It's actually a lot harder than that. His command is a lot harder than that. It means we need to send people into all the language groups of the world. This is why we'll get to Roman, or excuse me, Revelation 5 and 7 later, but around the throne... The Apostle John is clear, around the throne there were people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. About 17,000 of these, by the way, more on that in a minute. 17,000 or so people, people groups in the world. Jesus said that his followers need to be discipling all these people groups. Every language group must hear and respond to the gospel, be baptized, be gathered into local churches, be taught how to follow Jesus. This is Jesus' command. So why should we care about what's happening in Iran? Why should you pick up a little prayer guide or just pray on your own for the nations? Because Jesus told us to. Jesus literally commanded us to care about the nations. He didn't just say, make disciples of all the people around you. He said, make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnies, all the people groups. The Apostle Paul, of course, knew Jesus' command well. How do we know? Because Paul gave his life to obeying it. He was called the Apostle to the Gentiles. So the second reason we need to care about the nations is Paul's example, Paul's ambition or example. Paul kept pushing the gospel out to the frontiers, to places where it was not yet proclaimed. If you would, turn to Romans chapter 15. We'll look at just a few verses in a moment. What the Apostle Paul did throughout his ministry, you can read about this in the book of Acts, is once he'd preached the gospel in a certain area, sometimes for only a few days before he'd get run out of town, sometimes for a few years like in Ephesus, however long it was, he'd preach the gospel to as many people as would listen, he'd gather converts into local churches, and then he would go to another region that didn't have any proclamation. This was his stated goal. This was the stated ambition of his life. Romans 15, verse 18. Romans 15, 18, Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, 
But as it is written, those who have never been told will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul's stated ambition is to preach the gospel where no one else is preaching the gospel, where no one else has preached the gospel. He says two reasons. He doesn't want to build on other people's foundations. And he says, God said this would happen. He quotes Isaiah, I think it's 51 there in verse 21. Those who've never been told will see. Those who don't hear will understand. There's a promise from the Old Testament that compels Paul to go out to these unreached regions because God said they will hear and they will see and they will understand. But Paul knows that they won't do any of that unless someone goes tells them. Someone's got to get out there. Someone's got to get out of Corinth, get out of Ephesus, get out of Galatia, go into the other regions. He wanted to push out to the places nobody else was going to so that he could preach and plant churches. This is why he says in verse 19 that he had fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Illyricum is the modern-day Balkan region. It's in between Greece and Italy. Um, later, just a few verses later, in verse 23, interestingly, he says he, has, he no longer has any room for work in these regions. This is crazy if you think about it. This is a huge swath of territory. Paul says he has no room for work in this region. This is in the first century, the first few decades of the church. Is he saying that everyone in those regions has heard the gospel and all these people are now Christians? I don't know. That's obviously not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the gospel has already been preached there, that believers have been gathered into local churches, churches have been established in those regions, that they, they can then continue preaching the gospel and making more converts and gathering them to more local churches. So his room for work is closed, uh, closed in those regions because the gospel is already there. Not because everybody's already a Christian, but because the gospel's already there, so he needs to go to other regions. This is why he says in verses 24 and 28 that he wants the Roman church to send him over to Spain. And church tradition tells us that he does indeed make it to Spain and then comes back to Rome where he's beheaded. Paul's ambition was to take the gospel where there was no gospel. So why should we care about the nations? Because the great apostle Paul cared about the nations. His ambition was to get the gospel where there was no gospel, to plant churches where there were no churches. Paul knew Jesus' command, and he ordered his ambitions accordingly. Now let's stop for a moment and consider our own lives. Friend, what's the, what's the ambition of your life? What's the ambition of your life? Think of it this way. Where do you hope to be in five years? What do you want to be doing in 10 years? 20 years? 40 years? You're like, only God knows the future. You know, we, yes, I understand that. We trust the Lord. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. But have you thought carefully about what, what direction your life is going towards? What rails you're running on? And where you want that train to end in five years, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, when you're laying on your deathbed and you're dying and you're about to go meet Jesus, what you want to look back and to celebrate and rejoice in? upon what's the ambition of your life ambition is not necessarily bad it's often assumed to be bad but godly ambition is not bad if your ambition is for you of course if it's all about you then that would be a problem but paul has his word in verse 20 is ambition this is my ambition i want to do this i long to do this i have a vision a passion for this ambition is not bad 
The question is, is our ambition godly? Is it God-centered? Do we have a godly ambition like Paul that's driving us, that's compelling us forward to do hard things for God? How do our ambitions line up with Jesus' command and Paul's example? Do our ambitions have a God-centered flavor? What's the ambition of your life? What's the ambition of your life? Now, none of us can do all that needs to be done on the earth for God. None of us can do everything, but we can all have a God-sized vision and ambition for our lives that reflects God's priority. So what I'm driving at here, does your vision reflect God's vision? What I'm not saying, more on this later, is that you all have to be missionaries. We all have to move to West Asia. What I am saying is, does your vision at some level reflect God's vision? One of my greatest struggles through Bible college and seminary early in ministry as a fledgling youth pastor. <laughs> Amen. Erica. <laughs> Amen. I struggled so much figuring out exactly what I was supposed to do. My problem was is I wanted to do everything. <laughs> I wanted to do missions, evangelism, church planning, discipleship, theological training, uh, camp ministry, preaching, teaching, pastoring. <laughs> I wanted to do it all. Over time, with the help of many friends and my beautiful wife, encouraging me and helping me think through things. I realized that God had wired me, gifted me, called me to preach, teach, pastor a church in America. So I started narrowing my focus down to those things. I turned down a job with a missions organization that Susie and I were scheduled to go on board with uh, right after we were married. And so we got married, and then I said no, and I was jobless (laughs) Um, right out of the gates and started mowing yards and continued going to school. Eventually started serving as a youth pastor where God began to prepare me to be a senior pastor. So what happened in those months is I said no to full-time missions work because the Lord led me, was leading me to say yes to preaching and pastoring. Several years after this, I was on a mission trip in Zambia teaching at the International Bible College of Zambia, and I was wrestling with this offer to come and teach there full-time as a, as a professor. And I, I, I was a youth pastor still at the time, and I was wrestling with, do I do this? Do we move over here and, and take this job, or do I stay in America and try to pastor a church in America somewhere? And I really struggled with what to do. But over time and through lots of wise counsel, the Lord made it clear to me that I needed to say no to the Bible college so that I could say yes to preaching and pastoring in Dallas. In fact, it was while on that trip I was rooming with this old seasoned pastor who said, John, teaching here would be a great opportunity, but not every opportunity is an obligation. Not every opportunity is an obligation. But what the Lord did over the course of these years, and what I'm encouraging you with, is that having a vision having some ambition, having God-sized, God-directed, godly direction is good and right. And it can lead to more being done for the kingdom among the nations. Knowing what it is that God wants you to do is extremely helpful because it allows you to say no to everything else. One of the wisest things you can do is say no to good things so that you can say yes to the best things. Not every opportunity is an obligation. We all, yes, we all have a role to play in God's work among the nations, but we all aren't supposed to be full-time cross-cultural missionaries. There was a moment when I was out at that Bible college in Zambia. We were out in the middle of nowhere, and it was glorious. I would go running 
around the campus or outside the campus, and you would see like in the sand uh, paths where mambas, you know, like the deadliest snake, were like just all over. You'd see them everywhere, these little trails. And I remember running one day and getting to the end of the path and just stopping. And kind of if you kept going, if I kept going this way, it was back towards the airport and home and Dallas and everything, and the college was back this way. I remember having this Jonah moment thinking, man, I really want to stay here. I love this work. I love these brothers. These brothers are so hungry for the Word of God. They just want the Word of God so much. They're so on fire to spread the gospel and plant churches. Oh, how I'd love to be a part of that. And I get to the end of this path, and I'm thinking it's like the last day there. I'm like, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? You know, I'm like, Joan, I don't want to go. <laughs> I don't want to go to Dallas. I want to go back to Dallas. I want to stay here. But the Lord made it clear to me that he wanted me to go back to Dallas. He wanted me to come plant my life here, be a part of a church here that could be a launching pad back to the nations. Not all of us will be cross-cultural missionaries. Are you hearing me? Not all of us will. Not all of us can be or will be, should be. But does your vision, does your ambition, does your life, does the, the thing you want to do at any level have God's, God's goal for being glorified among the nations as a part of that? We all have a role to play. Some of us will go and some of us will stay. Either way, we need to consider Jesus' command, Paul's example, and now finally God's ultimate goal. What is God doing around the world? Where? Well, let me do a quick survey of the whole Bible in about five minutes. You guys ready? So God creates man and woman in his image to reflect his glory to the nations, to the world. Sin comes into the world. After sin, God sets in motion a plan to make his glory known to all the peoples of the world through sinners. It starts with a man named Abram who becomes Abraham in Genesis 12. Then it continues with a man named Moses and the Israelites who are in slavery in Egypt through their slavery, um, or in their slavery, God meets them there and comes and with Moses, through Moses, and delivers them. He tells Pharaoh through Moses that he will raise Pharaoh up so that his power might be, his name and his power might be proclaimed to all the earth. Hundreds of years after that, King Solomon asked the Lord to bless Israel so that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord. All throughout Israel's hymn book, the Psalms, the Lord repeatedly challenges his people to make his glory known to all nations. The prophets say that God is going to send a Savior that's going to be for Israel and for all the peoples. Isaiah 49, 5 and 6, the Lord says, I will make you, this servant, this Savior, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. How's it going to happen? Well, we know how it happens because we can look backwards towards Jesus. God sends his son Jesus, a son of Abraham, a descendant of David, who perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses through his perfect life and substitutionary death on the cross to purchase a people from all the peoples of the world. Now, what then has to happen, Jesus knows that he's purchased the people, but then at the end of his life, before he goes back to heaven, he tells his followers, his disciples, that you've got to go out there and you've got to tell them. You've got to make my work known to them through your words. You've got to make disciples of all the nations because I've ransomed, I've gathered a people from all the peoples to myself through my death. But to make this happen, you disciples, you followers have to go out there and tell people. You have to make disciples. You have to help people follow me. The amazing thing is that we already know that Jesus' command will be fulfilled. The book of Revelation tells us that history concludes with a worshiping multitude made up of people from every nation. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne before the Lamb. 
singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is where history is headed. So in summary, God starts with a plan to reveal his glory to the nations. He accomplishes that plan through Christ. Then he sends his disciples to the ends of the earth to gather into his, together his people into one called churches. And then one day we will all be in a gathering, a singular gathering around his throne where all the nations will be present. This is where history is headed. This is God's goal. So again, back to my previous question. What's the ambition of your life? Does God's goal for His glory to spread through all the nations of the world come into play at any level for your, uh, the vision for your life? God wants to be glorified through all the peoples coming and rejoicing in His Son. So He's commanded us, Jesus commanded us, Paul has given us the example, and God's goal is clear through Scripture. These are the three reasons why we should care about what God is doing among the nations. But I want to close with one further reason. It's not so much a, a reason that I can take out of the Bible, though it's certainly there. It's not a Bible verse. But the, the last reason I want us to end on is, as I prayed earlier, the need. The countless billions who are dying and going to hell every single day. I think it's the Joshua Project who estimates over 40% of the world's population has still never heard the gospel. 40%. At 3.24 billion people have little to no access the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does this mean? Just think with me for a moment. A lot of us grew up in and around the gospel. Some of you didn't, and I'm so happy that the Lord came and saved you through friends and through testimony, faithful testimony of friends. But most of us grew up in and around the gospel. Most of us who grew up around the church or even in the church or with godly Christian parents, we had the gospel. Even before we were Christians, we had the gospel. But here's the thing. Millions and billions of people don't have the gospel. And they're not going to stumble across it. They're not going to show up at church on Easter Sunday. Because <laughs> there are no churches. They're not going to meet a Christian friend in the marketplace. Or in their classroom at their college campus. Why? Because there aren't any Christians there. <laughs> there are no Christians. There's no church. So this means. This means that 3.24 billion people are born, live, die, go to hell, and never hear the name never hear the name never hear the name well God's love they're all going to be you know as long as they do the best they can with the religion they're in they'll be okay no <laughs> that's flat out not biblical Jesus says there's only one name under heaven by which you must be saved it's his name those who don't place conscious faith in Jesus Christ will die and go to hell forever and so the need is staggering this need should disrupt our lives. Not only all around us, in our city, in our neighborhood, in our college campuses, but also around the world, the need is staggering. 7,432 people groups are unreached. That's 7,400 language groups that don't have enough Christians. Some are totally unengaged, have no Christians, but they, there aren't enough Christians there to create you know, adequate numbers and resources to evangelize the people group. 7,400 of them. Alyssa's going to be working in one. The Stockups are in one. The Fergusons, the Fergusons are working among dozens of people groups in South Asia. Our friends in Southeast Asia are working among another one. 7,400 people groups. Little or no access to the gospel. 
this reality can't leave us the same way it finds us. So what should we do in light of such overwhelming lostness? How should we respond to Jesus' command, Paul's example, and God's goal? Let me give you three things. These are not new for you, but I'm going to give them to you again. We must pray, we must give, and we must go. We must pray, we must give, and we must go. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, go out and plant lots of churches. No, it's not what he says. In Matthew 9, he says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that more workers would be sent into the harvest, that he would send out laborers into his harvest. Theologian David Wells says that prayer is rebelling against the status quo, rebelling against the status quo. So if the status quo is billions of people headed to hell without any knowledge of Jesus, then we must rebel for the sake of their souls. Again, please, I'm just trying to plead with you. What if no one ever told you the gospel? And what if you grew up in a home where there was no gospel? You just kind of grew up and tried your best to please some vague deity or deities that you were taught were true. And you die and you meet Jesus and you didn't even know there was a Jesus. This must do something to us. This status quo can be rebelled against through prayer. If the status quo is that the vast majority of the American church's mission efforts go to already reached areas of the world, then we should rebel for the sake of the people groups lying in darkness. We must pray for more workers to be sent to the hardest places, to the unreached places, and we must pray earnestly. Again, there are several copies of this 40-day prayer guide out on the table if you'd like, or just get online and download it yourself, TGC, gospelcoalition.com. So we must pray. We must pray. We must pray as a church, and we must pray as families and as individuals. Secondly, we should give money to missions. We should give lots of money to missions. Missions takes money. It always has. It always will. To reach the unreached peoples of the world is going to require the training and sending and supporting of thousands of missionaries and cost millions of dollars. Missionaries are normal people with bills just like you, with children just like you, with medical costs just like you, with the need for theological training. Right? We don't want to just send anybody over there, right? We want to make sure they're actually preaching the gospel, <laughs> that they know what a local church is. So we want to invest money into theological training. We want to invest money into families so that they can pay their bills and not have to worry about fundraising all the time, and they can just do the work God's given them to do. By the way, if you give faithfully to our local church, here are some of the ways that your gifts have been used just over the last year. Last year we gave, you gave $15,000 just under 10% of our undesignated receipts to missions. Most of those monies went to work and workers among the unreached peoples of the world. A big chunk of that was $8,500 to the International Mission Board through Lottie Moon. We've given money to Erica Selby, our sister, Alicia Schrode, our other sister. We've given money to the Fergusons in South Asia for SD cards full of gospel resources for pastors, money to the Stalkups to help them transition to their new home in West Asia, uh, monthly support for the Stalkups. We've given thousands of dollars towards Tobin's ministry in South Asia. By the way, all the proceeds from today's chili cook-off, by the way, there's a chili cook-off today, in case you didn't know. Hope you're hungry. You're like, yes, we're hungry. Land a plane already. <laughs> Every dollar that we raise today will be sent to Tobin. He's, he's working with 26 evangelists and missionaries there in South Asia. Uh, guys, he knows and he supports already that are out in the, the unreached areas, out and around the city he's in doing 
important work. So all of our funds today are going to go right to Tobin, which will go to these 26 evangelists around South Asia. So how can we give more? Well, we need to cut. We need to look at our budgets. We need to have budgets. We need to look at our budgets carefully. What, can, what needs to stay? What can go? How can we give more? We pray, we give. Finally, the third thing we can do is go. This is the first word of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples. Some will send through prayer and giving, but some must go. The unreached places of the world won't be reached unless someone goes to them with the gospel. Let me say it this way. You wouldn't have become a Christian unless someone went to you with the gospel. So we have to go to people with the gospel. College students, have you considered spending two years after graduation on the mission field? There's a thing called the Journeyman Program where you can join a church planning team in an unreached area of the world and just serve and do whatever they're doing to reach that area. Next week, we'll have a guy named Micah here from the IMB to talk more with you about that. Hey, look, college students, our Mormon friends are already doing this. They have to. (laughs) They have to go spend two years somewhere. Did y'all know that? They have to go spend two years. Why can't we do that? Why can't we do that? You're like, John, i got to start my career. Yeah, you can do that. After you do this, you got two years with no kids, no spouse, no bills, amen, right? You're so flexible. You're, you're ridiculously flexible. Why not? Why not? Why not just jump on a church planning team for two years? They'll even pay you. They'll pay you to come and help them. Two years. It's called the Journeyman Program. Come next week. Come talk with Micah more after church next week for more on that course anyone can go not just college students there's a very good chance that you could do the job you're doing right now in another city of the world all while being on a church planning team seeking to make disciples where there are few or none and as i said earlier going doesn't have to mean that we even get on a plane or get overseas the nations have come to dfw hundreds of thousands of people here in dallas are from all over the world they're in our backyard and many of them are from areas of the world that are unreached Many of them are just down the street at UTD. Where's Sue at? I don't see Sue. Amen? Hi, Sue. Many of them are literally right down the street. Hi, Jordan. Thank you, brother. Y'all's ministry to international students is so amazing. They're coming here to go to school. What if they also found Jesus? Emil came to Jesus because of this effort. Amen? What if many more of us just helped these sisters? Where's Erica Selby? Erica's working right here in Richardson. I think it's Richardson doing refugee ministry amongst people from unreached areas of the world. So if y'all want to jump on with what they're already doing, just go see them. How can you help? How can you give? How can you pray? They need all the support they can get. Many of us probably have neighbors that are from other places of the world. The opportunities around here are endless. We must pray. We must give. We must go The problem with all of this, and let's just be honest, is that our hearts are cold and hard, selfish, idolatrous, comfortable, and we're so consumed. Man, I'm so consumed with everything. Like, there's just so much all the time, you know? And the main things that God has put us here to do get lost in the shuffle. So what we need is God to help our hearts be ignited by the thing that ignites His heart. So we need to pray For workers, yes, but we need to pray for our own hearts. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes. We're going to close by spending these last few moments reflecting on the Word of God and also how we need to be reawakened. We need to be aware of what's 
around us, those who are around us, what God is asking us to do. So just in these few moments, after I pray, spend a few moments thinking about how you can align your life to what God has commanded through Jesus, Paul's example, and his great goal. Father, please help us. Please show us, Lord. Please show us where we can, where we can jump in head first and just get involved, get active, get praying, giving, going. Lord, show us what you want us to do. We can't all do everything, and we shouldn't try because we'll burn out really quick. But Lord, we can all do something. So please show us, Father. Please show us, Father, what you want us to do. Help husbands and wives to be praying about this, roommates, friends. Lord, I pray that even our children would get a heart for the nations. I pray that our children who grow up in this church would understand that your heart beats for the nations. The question is not whether, we're, whether we should be passionate for the nations. You're passionate for the nations, therefore we should be. I pray that, that our kids would see something of that in us. Lord, give us a vision for the nations, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.